Um, in terms of getting started, you know, typically the way most people do it is they either go get a W-2 job where they go work for somebody else and they save up money to then invest in something where they're going to have equity. Yeah, a holding company in business sense is a company that owns multiple other businesses. Um, and then the business of that holding company is to own those other businesses. And then depending on how you set it up, sometimes that holding company offers support or centralized services to those other companies. 48 right now, I'm really still trying to figure out like what I want to do when I'm 68. And so I don't have a perfect answer on it. Um, today, if I think about what generates the most happiness for me, uh, it is. So, hey, Michael, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, I'm fantastic. I'm super happy to be here talking to you from like all the way across the world, which is like one of the coolest things about like modern technology. Awesome. So I think let's get into it. Stop talking about Zach now. Uh, you build, you you, build, you have a holding company. Um, you work on it every day. What is a holding company? Yeah, a holding company in business sense is a company that owns multiple other businesses. Um, and then the business of that holding company is to own those other businesses. And then depending on how you set it up, sometimes that holding company offers support or centralized services to those other companies. Uh, sometimes it just sits there and just holds those business interests and uh, and just does some basic stuff uh, at headquarters. So, And then there's all kinds of varieties in between of the different types of holding companies that are out there. And you... Uh set up a holding company, do you own 100% of these businesses or are these in shares or equity? Uh, there's different ways that people set them up. Um, sometimes you have wholly owned subsidiaries. Sometimes you have things that other owners own part of those subsidiaries. Uh, sometimes you have a mixture of those things. So there's stuff in my world um, where I own 100% of companies and then there's stuff where I own 20% or 40% of a company and I hold those interests inside of the, the holding company. And why? Uh, I think that whenever you put together a venture or whenever you put together uh, a company, um, it needs to be structured the right way to support the mission of the company. So, for example, let's say that you're going to have a business holding that needs to grow quickly uh, over time and it's going to require capital to do that. In order to get that capital, you're typically going to have to give up ownership to other people. So then it can make sense to have other owners around that. Uh, there are other businesses like my media business where I own 100% of the media business um, and it works just fine that way. So really, it ultimately totally depends upon the situation and the eventual outcome of what you want the business to do. What do you think is your eventual outcome of what you want the business to do? Yeah, I, th I think it's a great question. I'm 48 right now. I'm really still trying to figure out like what I want to do when I'm 68. And so I don't have a perfect answer on it. Um, today, if I think about what generates the most happiness for me, uh, it is creating things that create opportunities for other people and do that at scale. And so that's the theme of everything I've done, uh, whether it's creating opportunities for employees, co-founders, uh, or the customers. Like I want to do that and I want to do that with the maximum impact that I can uh, while you know staying true to my, my values for sure. But uh, you have a vision for where you want to take the holding company and what you want to do. But will there be a point in time which, when you achieve the, achieve that vision, and that will lead to your life becoming boring? For you? It's definitely a possibility. Um, you know, I think that's where you point about your question brings out a really important point is. You know, what your work on shouldn't be about money, status, you know, what clubs you're in, you know, um, none of that stuff, when you truly get there, will you discover makes you happy, right? What makes you happy is working on things that matter to other people, that matter to you, uh, and the relationships you build with other people along the way. So, you know, it's this idea of destination versus journey. And for me, I have discovered that there's a truth in life, which is like, if you figure out a way to enjoy the journey and tap dance to work and do whatever you can to maximize those things that inspire you, um, it's hard not to be a happy person. And in the end, if you end up a millionaire or you end up with just, you know, just okay in life, or you end up a decamillionaire, like, 
Uh, I've known a lot of 85 year olds and they don't really give a crap about how much money they have, right? It's about, in the end, they figured out it's about their friends, family, and their community. It's about the things that they've created that have helped other people. Uh, and none of that money stuff actually matters when you look at all that stuff in retrospect. And to me, I think that is a really telling recipe for how we should all live our lives, which is figure out the way you can work on things that are inspirational to you and to other people and uh, and make your life about that. And, and don't worry about the money and all that kind of stuff and the prestige that comes with it because none of it in the end really will make you happy. And because it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. I'm curious, why did you decide to start a holding company? I really backed into it. Um, you know, I was running a single business as a co-owner and CEO of it and realized that the stuff I was doing day to day wasn't as inspiring to me as it as it could be. And um, so then I decided just to take the leap and start a second business. And then I made the mistake at that time to try to be the CEO of two businesses, which I don't think you can do. Uh, I know there are people out there that say they're the CEO of five businesses and whatever, but I don't think doing that job the right way, you can do it. Um, and ultimately, I started a second business, and then I started investing in other businesses, then I started a third business, I started a fourth business. And you know, after the second one, I learned I couldn't CEO all of them um, and spread my time around you know, that thin. And I ended up partnering with people and hiring the right people to learn those businesses and run them. And um, yeah, so I really backed into it. And then only did I start to hit on the like holding company name and that sort of thing about four years ago. Um, that happens to me a lot in my career. I'll start doing something and I'll build it. And somebody will tell me later on, like, oh, there's a name for what you're doing. And and, I, and I'm like, well, I just kind of figured it out by watching other people and copying them. So yeah, really backed into it, but just one business at a time. When you, when you build these businesses, was it after one reached a certain success point, success metric, that, that you started the other one or was it, was it like parallelly? Yeah, it's interesting. The To start new businesses, people think the constraining factors are money or idea. And actually, to me, uh, I think the constraining factors are actually opportunities. Um, it's harder to find great opportunities to pursue that meet the criteria of things that are going to work for me than it is to find people or money. And money is actually the easiest part of it. So, you know, for me, the limiting factor is really when I discover the right opportunities to work on, then I can go start pursuing and building those things. Um, and so because of that, and because I realize how hard opportunities are to find, I don't really set a timeline of when I'll start stuff, right? It's not like, oh, okay, like when I'm, you know, I'll, I'll do it immediately, I'll do it six months later, or a year later. It's just like, oh, when I see a good opportunity and the stars align to make it a reality where I can pursue it, uh, then I'll go do it. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. So, but how, how do you decide, like, you, right now you're at a point where you buy subsidiaries to if I'm not wrong? Instead of just building them from scratch. I've built some companies that are serial acquirers. So like we have one company that has bought 15 other businesses. So I've done a lot of M&A work um, supporting them and working in that business. But by and large, most of the holdings that I have are things that I've incubated. How do you decide what to in incubate? It's really fun. I have a, a whole checklist uh, that I've built and it's like 30 things. Uh, I put it on Twitter a few months ago. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, if I, if it meets all these criteria, I'll work on it. The tough thing is like, there's a lot that doesn't meet those criteria. Um, so I have to be very picky. And again, that's why I don't end up producing as much as I possibly could because like that criteria is so specific. And um, so basically, yeah, that's, that's the general way I approach it is like, okay, I have a list of things that I'm going to stick to. And like, if the idea doesn't stick to that, I'm not going to work on it. What are the like the general things which guide the points on these checks? Is... Yeah, the the general idea is um, self reflection about the type of life I want to live, and I think a lot of people get it wrong that your business you you live to serve your business, and I think it needs to be the other way around. You need to craft your business to reflect the type of life you want to live, and you know at this stage in life, I really want to work on inspiring ideas that help people and can get really big. And so, 
you know, it's easy for me to sit down and say, okay, here's the type of criteria I want to have, right? Um, and then there's so then there's a lot of qualitative things about it as well, where like I want to work on things that are going to be things I would proud to talk about at a party or put on my resume, right? There's lots of ways to make money that people aren't very proud of, and I I don't want to do any of those. Um, you know, so I think you put all those things together and you can start to narrow down and do, like you said, like the Venn diagram of like 50 circles and try to find stuff in the middle. That's that, that's an interesting thing. Um, but how long did it take for you to really learn all these things? Uh, I am a continual learner. <laughs> I've been learning about business, life, and I'm still learning stuff every single day. Um, you know, this year I've made some huge mistakes and, um, you know, I think that just creates an opportunity for me to grow every day and get better. And then the coolest thing about being both a practitioner, I think, and a teacher, uh, of this stuff via social media is like, I am sharing my journey of learning things and how I've learned to do things better over time. And it creates the most powerful, I think, of teaching when you're like truly living the life and doing the thing. Because you can speak both from experience and also from the data you gather from doing it, uh, and also be more credible to the people that are going to be reading it. So, to me, those are like, you know, it, it's a perfect it's a perfect storm for me in terms of what I want to accomplish in the world. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I think you mentioned uh, in the last one you mentioned about lifestyle. You deciding the the business, not deciding what you want to build. Uh, so in relation to, in relation to this, what do you think differentiates your holding company from the one that from a one like Alphabet? Uh, well, Alphabet has like the sec- second greatest business in the history of humanity. If you're if behind the iPhone, <laughs> their ads business. So, uh, if I had that business, I could be really stupider <laughs> in terms of approaching stuff because. Man, what an unfair, like beautiful advantage for them. It's it's just a great business that, you know, it's, it's not going anywhere for the foreseeable future. You know, I think Alphabet, uh, because of that nature of the scale that they have, the size of the business, of course, you know, that's going to turn into the types of things that their founders want to work on. You know, Larry and Sergey and, and the gang there are worth, you know, tens or hundreds of billions of dollars. That's just a different existence from the one I live, right? I do things at a much smaller scale. Um, I haven't been, you know, I haven't been on the trajectory that they've been on. So, you know, that means, uh, I think to some extent, my uh, my bets of things that I work on are going to be very different from theirs. They're trying to solve, you know, global connectivity and self-driving cars and mining asteroids. Like those are big CapEx heavy things that are big moonshot style ideas. You know, mine tend to be less CapEx heavy, potentially less risky approaches to stuff. And, you know, that just really ties into, you know, both the strengths that I have and then also the opportunities and capabilities that I have. Like I don't have that kind of money like sitting around. I wish I did. (laughs) And that'd be a lot of fun. If I had that kind of money, I would have flown to India. We could have done this podcast in person. So yeah. Uh, do you think people, is it that people, some people or some holding company owners don't want to, don't want to become that big, uh, like as big as Alphabet or do they really want to remain small in any company as an I, I think small is potentially beautiful for the right person, right? And this is this idea that, you know, the business you cr- should create should align to the future that you want to live as a person. And there are some people, for example, I know a guy here in San Antonio where uh, he runs a law firm and he has four people working for him. He's making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. He works about 40 hours a week. He gets to hang out and talk to his clients. Uh, and he has zero interest in growing anything bigger, owning any other businesses. Uh, he is just happy doing that thing. And that's the right thing for him. And I think the same kind of idea translates to holding companies or any type of business as well, right? Which is like, just because the world says it wants you to create the next Google or it wants you to do become a lawyer or a doctor or like build this other type of firm, like those are all stylistic choices that you get to make as a human being because it's your life that you get to live and your business is a part of designing that life for yourself. So 
The same applies for holding companies. You may decide you want to have a very small holding company, and there's some of those that are three businesses in a small town, and they own the coffee shop, and they own the restaurant, and they own the auto rental place in this tiny town, and they're super happy to do that. And there's just nothing wrong with that. Just like there's nothing wrong with somebody that wants to be bigger and ambitious. And, you know, I end up in that camp, but that's just what's right for me. That's not going to be right for everybody else. And it would be stupid for me to come in here and be like, this is the only way you must do this because like my lifestyle choices are the right lifestyle choices for me. And you should build your holding company or whatever your business interests are to support the lifestyle you want to live. QED, that's it. That's the principle. Uh, and anything that people tells you otherwise, I think is just incorrect. What what drives people then? If you're just doing it, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I think uh, holding company or life in general, I think you potentially have different lenses in terms of how you look at the world. Um, one of the things you know I've been learning about recently is there's this idea of people are either running from something or they're running to something. And so... Running to people who are running towards something, um, they potentially want to have a better future or they potentially want to have a better outcome for their children or they want to create a bigger impact on their community. Hopefully you've heard me talk that way. Like that's the types of things that I want to be doing. I'm a running to person. I think that and, and I try to live that way and I think that's very positive. But then you have people I think that you can see them all the time. They are running from and running from people are doing things like they're driven by what their parents want them to do, or they're driven by hurt that, or trauma that they had when they were a young person, or they're driven by fear that they experienced, you know, from um, from their younger days or from from their life, and that's causing them to run from that pain or run from that fear and start to do things that really are unhealthy, right? They could be driven and make all this money and push all these places, but really, there's something that happened that they're running from. And I think the healthiest thing for those people is to recognize what they're doing, see that it's potentially unhealthy, and then figure out how to become a running to person, where you're running towards the vision of a future that you want to create for yourself, your community, and your family. So anyway, I think I think that's what drives people. You're either doing it in a healthy way, running to, or you're doing it in a very unhealthy way and running from. Uh, and the first step to fix all that is just to understand what's truly pushing you to push as hard as you are. But... Uh, that's a, that's a very good point. Is this something that you're running from? Oh, sure. I mean, I have childhood traumas. <laughs> Everybody else does, yeah. Um, much less so these days. I mean, I had uh, teenage years where, you know, I didn't fit in with social groups, um, you know, bad breakups, um, you know, the the positives and negatives of being a kid. You know, your parents can't help but be the best parents they can, but that sometimes means, you know, stuff happens. So, you know, I think all those things sometimes show up as running from moments and they were definitely more significant in my younger days, um, where I would be driven by those things. And, um, I think today I feel like I'm very much a running to person, like I'm comfortable in my skin and know where I want to go and what I want to work on. And, you know, I think one time a business coach asked me like, he, he said, you know, okay, you have financial goals and all that kind of stuff. And he's like, will that be enough? And I was like, yeah, sure. It's enough today. Like, I don't, I'm not driven by any of that stuff. I'm driven by the act of creating and the act of service for other people. And uh, that's the test, right? Like, if you have these goals and ambition, you have to ask yourself how you're going to feel when you get there. Are you chasing something or, or a change of mindset? And if the answer is yes, that means you're probably running from and you should really rethink the approach there. Yeah, that, that that that's a very good point. I think I, I've heard this before. Yeah, I think so. I I think I, I'll come back to holding up here. We got a fun uh, intellectual run there, but uh, what you you were the co-owner of a company before starting your holding company. What how is it different from running the holding company versus from normal operating company? Yeah, so. My thesis and the thing I've seen in the world is that running a holding company is very different from, um, and it's in many regards, the exact opposite from being the CEO of a single business. So for example, if you're running a holding company and somebody else is the CEO of a business, you're, um, when a problem comes up, you have to do something very different than if you're the CEO of that company. 
So if you're the CEO of that company and a big problem comes up, you have to go sprint to that problem and figure out how to solve it. And that's your job. Like you you dive in, you get your hands dirty and you own it because that's your job, right? You are the CEO, you're the chief executive of that business. If you're the CEO of a holding company and a CEO is running one of your subsidiaries, if a bad thing comes up, your reaction has to be the exact opposite, which is, oh, that sounds terrible. (laughs) How can I help? And what are you doing about it to the CEO in terms of a response? So if you think about it, that also applies to all kinds of different things in terms of capital allocation, time allocation, uh, mind share in terms of how you think about the business, the duration of, how, of the timelines in which you're supposed to be thinking about your business. Those all really apply differently when you switch from this role of being the CEO slash owner of a holding company, you know, supervising other CEOs versus the CEO of an individual company. And I think a lot of people make that transition to go from one business to multiple ones, but never fully make the transition out of that first CEO role and flip their mindset almost you know, 360 degrees to be ready to be the CEO of a whole company or holding company. So um, radically very different um, and also very hard. And in the course that I built around holding companies, like I spent a lot of time talking about your days are very different when you're running a holding company versus when you're the CEO of a single company. Yeah, we'll get to we'll get to time management in a little bit. But uh, how does uh, you have different CEOs uh, for the different companies that you have? How does the relation between these CEOs and the founder of the old company really develop? Uh, there are different ways that people do them, um, and there are some people that have basically zero relationship with the CEOs of those companies. I mean, Berkshire Hathaway is kind of that way. There's yeah. there's a board of directors and shares and the co- those companies are very big. And Warren Buffett, you know, rarely, if ever, is talking to the individual CEOs of the companies and he's letting them do their job, right? Um, and then there's the other end of the spectrum, which is where I'm at, which is I spend a lot more time in one-on-ones, CEO coaching, um, you know, spending time deeply involved in the companies. And that doesn't mean I'm in there doing the business of the company, but it means I'm really much more hands-on than a, the way another people set up, set up hold goes. Um, some of that is, you know, you do that based on what you think the market opportunity needs. Frankly, like I don't own any railroads that are, you know, multi-billion dollar companies like Berkshire does. Um, and I have to really lean in to the companies that I'm part of because there are a lot of them are small businesses and they're less stable and all that kind of stuff in order to make them successful. And I think some of that also ties into what kind of lifestyle and what kind of things you like doing as a as a CEO of a holding company. I personally like supporting other people. I like that coaching process. I like the one-on-ones. It makes me feel like I'm being helpful and hopefully that we're increasing our chances of winning by me being deeply involved. So there's all kinds of things you can do in the spectrum between where I am and where you know the classic Berkshire Hathaway model is. And it's really up to individual like hold co-owners and investors to figure out what they want to do with their business and how that supports the lifestyle they want to live. What what does an uh what does a your one on one one with you and your CEO look like initiate like that? Yeah, I run um CEO one on ones feel very much like uh the ones you do with an employee. Um just minus a lot of the accountability stuff that comes up in a one on one with an employee. So you know, when you're a CEO in that role, you're supposed to be somebody that is um, self-starting, right? You're supposed to be taking ownership of goals. You're supposed to be the chief executive of executing on things. Um, because my role, where I'm on the board seat or in the, you know the the CEO of the the holding company, I'm not actively managing from a task perspective the CEO. So I'm not holding them accountable for results uh, and all that kind of stuff in the same way you would as somebody managing an employee. The stuff I do spend a lot of time on is leadership and personal development with those CEOs where I'm helping them sharpen their saw, to use that phrase, to become better uh, at what they're trying to do, uh, to help them solve big problems, to help them think better about those problems as well. Uh, and support them in their journey and the company's journey, therefore, to be the best it can be. So in practice, those meetings, uh, they happen uh, at varying frequencies depending upon what the company needs or the CEO needs for me. Some of them I do two times a week. Uh, Some of them I do once every other month. Um, And generally, what I spend my time on is 
helping talk through anything, number one, that they want me to be aware of that's going on. And then number two, uh, I love to jump in with them and talk through whatever their biggest challenge and problem is. And then we can work on that together and see how I can be helpful. Um, so, you know, that's generally what the format looks. If you're looking for like more specifics on the recipe, um, I wrote a whole thread on Twitter about how one-on-ones get done really well. I've done several things there. You can search Girdly and then one-on-ones. Um, we also talk about my newsletter a lot. Um, and so those are our places you can go with a bunch of details and tactics to make them as successful as possible. Yeah, for sure. How does a, uh, how do what, what do the employees in the holding company really, really do? Uh, the people like that are employed by headquarters yeah. and stuff like that. It really depends upon how you've set up the holding company and how much services you're expecting to centralize. So um, some people like me have very light headquarters staff and very little centralization. So I don't yeah. have like a shared services department. Like I don't have shared facilities in HR. Um, and some of that is just the nature of the assets I have don't really make a ton of sense to do that. Um, you know, so in our case, it's very lightweight, you know, we're doing some basic financial, um, assembling of the financial data that comes up from folks. So you have situations yeah. where the, you know, you can start to centralize things. You can centralize things like employee training, HR, finance, um, you know, what I also refer to as kind of these internal services, like internal consulting, those are all really possibilities that a company can um, centralize if they want to. Um, purchasing is another one, just depends upon the type of assets you have. Um, and then those employees would do that in the scope of, you know, being part of the holding company. Um, and again, there's no one right way. Uh, it really depends on what the market is needing from you uh, and what the business opportunity is in terms of building the hold co structure. How, how do you decentralize it? Um, so decentralization generally works by pushing things into the individual subsidiary companies rather than trying to have them in a single place uh, inside of headquarters or the holding company. So, um, yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Like, in, as an example, like if you want to centralize finance and accounting, you would have one department at headquarters that would do finance and accounting for all the companies. Uh, if you wanted to decentralize it, there would be a, a head of accounting in each individual organization owning that uh, owning that function. So it it uh, increases your costs uh, at the holding company. Uh, so it increases costs at the holding company. In theory, if you centralize stuff, it could be more efficient because you get economies of scale and you get um, the ability to to have buy it once and then use it across all the different different um, subsidiaries. In practice, um, centralization, most people overestimate how much benefit you get from it, in my belief. Um, so I, I tend to decentralize and create as entrepreneurial of culture as I can um, as without a bunch of centralization because it just, you know, it, it doesn't work as well as people think it will. Why, why doesn't it work as well as people? What, what do people think that differs from your thing? I think people underestimate complexity of adding nodes to a system. So if you think about it from like a computer science standpoint, the more nodes you add, the more connections you have, the more overhead you have. And then you start to, uh, you, I think people also overestimate how, or underestimate like how inefficient um, general purpose systems are, like where you're trying to like say have a centralized finance group do accounts receivable for a bunch of different businesses. Well, like that seems on paper, like it's very efficient, but in reality, um, because you're having each one of those different businesses has specialized needs, your centralized thing isn't as efficient as you think it would be, um, through that process. So I think those are the two things, like just the, the pure sense of, of size makes things more complex, but then secondarily, like, I think people underestimate the complexity of each individual business and then expect a single centralized thing will, you know, transform that for the better. Yeah. That's that, that's an interesting point. Uh, so you you do that, but before this, what I think uh, could be very helpful, very helpful. How, how, what does the process of the M and A look like for you as a holding company? 
Uh, there's different ways that it goes about. I mean, if you're Berkshire Hathaway, you have such a strong brand that people call you when there's a deal and, yeah. you know, and you, you say, you know, you're so well known that you see all the deals that you want to see and you have a, a strict criteria of what you're going to do. Uh, and then I think Warren Buffett and those guys talk about having, you know, such a deep understanding of businesses and, um, and the types of things that they want to buy that they, you know, can, can evaluate them very quickly from a, from a price standpoint. You know, if you're like more like the rest of us, you're doing a lot of outbounding to try to find the deals that are going to be interesting to you uh, to buy. So um, that can be things like outbounding to brokers and calling them just to try to find deals and searching for things that are going to be interesting. Uh, there's direct outreach to uh, individual sellers as well and people you can reach out to, you know, hey, would you be interested in selling your business? especially if they're strategic acquisitions that, you know, you know exactly what you want or it fits well with your existing portfolio. Um, that process happens, happens as well. And then mechanically, there's like a whole deep process in terms of how to buy a business. I, I'd be happy to go through that if that's what your question was. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that. Yeah, so um, basically the process at a high level to buy a business um, works like the following. Um, you find somebody that wants to sell the business and you want to buy the business. Um, you know, the first thing you would do is have a discussion with them to create a preliminary understanding of the business and how much you would be able to pay for it. And once you have those basic facts, typically the next step is uh, there would be an initial discussion around price and terms. Um, the typical structure where that gets done is around a thing called an indication of interest or an IOI, which is like a Hey, here, based on what we know today, here's what we think we could pay for your business and, and roughly how we would finance the thing. Um, if at that point, you, the seller and the buyer have the ability to say like, oh, okay, we think that's a deal we would accept and, we, and the buyer says this is a deal we would do if everything that we assume so far turns out to be true, then you move on to the next phase, which is you typically um, would sign a non-disclosure agreement, which enables the business to share uh, stuff that would be confidential to the potential buyer. Um, and then there basically goes through a process usually over the next few weeks to a month to reach the next phase of an acquisition, which is to send a letter of intent, which is a more formal binding document that would be more specific about price, structure, terms, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and also when that's signed, it typically puts the selling company into exclusivity with the buyer which means they will agree not to negotiate with anybody else for a period of time. And then after that LOI is signed, two processes kick off in parallel um, to eventually transact the business and sell it. Um, process number one is a due diligence process where you're going through and the buyer is learning everything they need to know uh, in order to, to do the deal. So that's things like financial diligence, people diligence, technology diligence, market diligence, and that can be done in-house or you pay service providers to do those type of things. And so that process happens. The second thing that happens in parallel is um, the negotiating of the contract to actually buy the business. So when you, uh, when you have uh, a business to buy, there is a purchase agreement which defines like, okay, the seller is selling all of this stuff and getting uh, XYZ from the buyer and that's a contract that gets signed uh, and then the money and ownership transitions at that point. So over the coming course of that exclusivity period, you could spend 30, 60, 90 days doing diligence, maybe longer depending upon the business. And then eventually those two processes uh, meet at the end when there's a closing date. And that's where the uh, buyer sends the money over to the seller to buy the business and the buyer now owns the business. And all of that is contracts and stuff that get closed to close that transaction. And then after that, the buyer owns a business and they start their process of running and owning the business and going from there and the, the seller potentially leaves with their money or whatever they agreed to as part of the transaction to stay on and help. And uh, the business has been sold. So that whole process can take a year, six months, three months. Sometimes they happen faster. Totally depends upon the business. How, how does this process really take place? Who are there lawyers involved in it, or are there separately M&A companies, or what really coordinates all these? Yeah, there's all kinds of um, ways that it gets coordinated, uh, and who who participates in it. Um, typically, the main players are they'll be the seller, 
uh, the seller will have an investment bank or a business broker represent them through the transaction. And then there is a, on the buyer side, there will be the buyer and potentially an investment bank or a business broker representing them. Um, other folks that get involved. Um, so basically real fast, like the business broker investment bank, they're like real estate agents for real estate, right? Or any, yeah. any type of um, person who gets paid when the deal closes and are, you know, have a fiduciary duty to their side of the transaction. Uh, other people get involved as service providers on both sides of the transaction. There are lawyers that negotiate purchase and sale agreements, all that kind of stuff. Uh, there are service providers uh, on both sides. Um, you know, for example, um, sometimes the buyer will have a, a thing called a quality of earnings done, which is a study of what the financial situation is of the selling company. And so you could hire that firm, they'll do a quality of earnings report, and then the seller will um, potentially have their accounting firm involved too to answer the questions from the buyer side. So all those different folks kind of get involved there through that process. But the core team is typically the broker slash investment banker, buyer, seller, uh, lawyers, uh, accountants, um, and then you know a handful of other folks that are all involved depending upon the size of the deal and complexity and all that kind of stuff. So. I can go a lot of different directions depending upon what the situation is. How do you choose investment bankers like Goldman Sachs or like the smaller ones? Or do... uh, so, yeah, so investment bankers will choose to work with different companies based or different transactions based on their strategy and mandates. So you have, for example, some investment bankers that only do ginormous deals, uh, some that only do them in certain industries. Then you have business brokers that are the same thing. They typically do the same function, but for much smaller companies um, and everything in between. So really what you're looking for is to find that investment banker who is going to be the most potentially, you know, additive person uh, and or team to add to the success of what you're doing um, and finding the right special firm there. So uh, I haven't done anything that would interest Goldman Sachs. Maybe I'll be big enough someday that they would care about me. But, um, you know, I've worked with some of the smaller investment banks and there's all kinds of stuff in between and, and folks out there that um, it's, it's just up to you to find the one that fits right to your, you know, your business transaction you're trying to do. Yeah, that, 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 that's a good point. And a couple of things, uh, you talked about letter of intent there, otherwise, uh, what, what, what is the difference between a memorandum of understanding and a letter of intent? Uh, the big difference of an MOU uh, versus a letter of intent is the letter of intent typically has um, some binding provisions provisions to it. Um, and also, I mean, when I see it, like a letter of intent is a letter of intent to do something. Uh, a memor memorandum of understanding uh, is typically legally not binding, but also can be used for things beyond just, you know, an intent to do something um, and can be can be mutual. So, for example, if you're defining a, a partnership and the way it's going to work, a memorandum of understanding can can be there. Um, so, yeah, that's they generally get used in different situations based on on those two criteria. Yeah, uh, I, I think uh, that's one thing which you mentioned at the start there, where you buy the companies. How do you at a at a stage when you started out and now, how do you really get the money to buy the subsidiaries? Yeah, I um. In terms of getting started, you know, typically the way most people do it is they either go get a W-2 job where they go work for somebody else and they save up money to then invest in something where they're going to have equity, uh, whether that's a business they start or a business they buy. Um, the, those are there. And then here in the U.S., there is another number of programs where you have available financing to go buy businesses um, in, I think, very good ways. The S SBA is the name of those type of programs. So. You know, those are the those are the typical ways that people get there. There are other ways where you bring some of your own money or your sweat equity and you go raise money from investors. Um, people will often get family money or friends and family to invest in their thing, which is, you know, sometimes closer to charity than it is to actual investing. Um, and those are all things there. Um, a number of other people start with starting a cash flowing business, something like a digital agency or a contracting company or a services business that really doesn't require much in terms of capital to get started. But then you generate cash from that and then you use that to start to build um, businesses on top of that. So 
you know, in my case, I did savings from W-2, um, and then I, you know, invested that when I, I joined our family business back um, back in the early 2000s, and then went from there to beautiful me today. <laughs> yeah. That thing, the thing they do, yeah. People, a lot of people should, I think, the W-2 job that relatively better, in, I think, so. Uh, I think, to your point, I think having a W-2 job is the best thing for most people. I think they'll be happiest doing it. Um, just like I also think, like, like there's a lot of pressure now where, like, every entrepreneur feels like they need to be a hold co-operator, right? That's, like, a lot of Twitter is, like, talking that. And it's, like, well, no, actually, I think I think 95% of people will be happier having a job. And that's nothing wrong with that. That's a lifestyle choice. Like, you do you. I think of the remaining 5% people, like 90% of those people will be happier just owning and operating one company at a time. Like you do you, that's a lifestyle choice. And then I think there's a weird small percentage of people that should be hold co-operators and they want to do this type of work every day and it would be delightful to them. But, you know, there's a lot of people I know that are CEO friends and they ask me what I do all day and they're like, that sounds miserable. And I'm like, it's terrific. And that's just, you know, an understanding we're all different people and we get to do different things, so. What what is so miserable miserable about it for them? For them, uh, I yeah. think that they like being able to focus on one thing. They like being able to control it very deeply. That's part of being a hold co operator. Like you don't get the your hands are not dirty. You have limited information in terms of what's going on in the business. There's level of trust there. Uh, there's increased risk because you're not in there running the business every single day personally. So all those are things you have to be okay with, and a lot of people are not. Which is totally fine. Like, no problem. Yeah. Sure. Incredible. So you buy the you buy companies, you incubate companies. How does the taxation really work? That's kind of weird in my opinion, because you have a main company, then you have the subsidiary. How does that really come about? Yeah, so um you know, when you own something, you're responsible for your tax liability around it. So at the very basic, if you have a company that's not producing any cash. Um, and is just compounding, which I have a, a lot of companies that are doing that, then I don't get any cash from them. And it's like, there's no tax. Pretty straightforward. I'll only pay tax when that company sells uh, or goes public or something like that. So that's an easy one. Uh, there are different ways you can take money out of your companies that do create tax liability. Um, you can have a job there. The company can pay you a salary. That's typically not very tax efficient, but um, that can happen. Um, for a while, we would do that. You can also take distributions. And depending upon the type of the company that it is, um, the, t the distributions flow up to your holding company and then you have to pay taxes on those or, or not. Um, so, and, and that gets taxed here in the US at a different rate, depending upon what type of corporation, uh, corporation it is. And we generally have two tax schemes um, for most small businesses. Um, one is uh, what is called a C-Corp, which is one that um, pays taxes at the corporation level, and then you pay taxes on dividends. So it has a double taxation scheme. And then there is uh, a pass-through entity, which is typically referred to, for, referred to as a subchapter S corporation, which the tax liability flows through to you as the owner, um, and there isn't kind of double taxation there. So those are the two ways it can work. Uh, each year I will pay taxes on income um, that comes from both types of companies, so it's very common for that to happen. But it all flows up back to the top, um, and then uh, I put a tax return, and it's like this thick. <laughs> yeah. Um, how, how do you decide what type of what type of corporation to read, like a C corp or I don't know, LLP? The uh, it totally depends upon the type of opportunity you're going after. Um, you know, the t in today's tax scheme. If you're going to have a high growth company with a lot of shareholders and your way to make money is to sell it someday, uh, it's pretty obvious you want to have a C-Corp. There's a lot of tax benefits to doing that. Uh, if your goal is just to cash flow um, or if it's a business that also has a lot of tax shielding in it due to depreciation and stuff like that, um, then an S-Corp or a pass-through entity almost always makes the most sense because the effective tax rate is a bit lower. Um, it really depends upon what the um, it depends upon what you need the business to do for you and what the goal of the business is, because um, all of them are right. They're just correct in different situations. Is a Delaware C corp similar to or the same as normal C corp? 
Uh, yeah, that's just the state that it's filed in in the U.S. So why why is American why registered in Delaware? So Delaware has a lot of things about the state that are very friendly to business, um, and it's also been a thing where the U.S. Um, the U.S. has naturally figured out uh, if you're going to start a um, start a company, it makes sense for everybody to use. Uh, one set of rules and one set of regulations. And so everybody standardizes on Delaware C-Corp. That way you don't have to deal with like what California decided this week or what Texas decided this week and and deal with some of the the vagaries of that kind of stuff. So that's my understanding of why. Um, and, and people end up just by default using Delaware. So Yeah, I think uh, we see everyone like people are registering, I'm registering in Delaware C-Corp or something, but... Uh, most people, a lot of people really don't know a lot why they are registering their receipt. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. And it's one of those things where it's just like your lawyer is going to suggest to do it and everybody just does it and it works for all of them. And like, I, I have some Texas C-Corps. I have some Delaware C-Corps. I have um, New York LLC. Well, I don't have a New York LLC. I have Texas LLCs. I've had Nevada LLCs, just stuff all over the place. So uh, it's very common. Yeah. That's that, that's an incredible point. I think this is the thing which I wanted to ask for a very long time. Uh, if you you buy these companies, everything is figured out. How do you structure the whole holding company portfolio? There's lots of different ways you can do it. Um, s- some people, in in my case, this is the way it is. Um, you know, your holding company is just like it, it's it's just like a. It's not a legal entity. Like I do have an entity that uh, that ends up um, supplying a lot of the services to subsidiary companies when we do that, and um, and employ some of my internal staff. But ultimately, like I still own stuff legally, you know, in in my in my personal name or via trust or stuff like that. So um, some of it is really just um, it's. I'm trying to find the right word for it. It's not. It's not a legal structure. It's like. Um, it's like a mental structure of how it all works, right? And it's an easy way to just encapsulate it. Um, other folks where they have multiple people on the cap table, multiple owners of the holding company itself, they will be a legal entity. Um, so some of the other folks are C-Corps or S-Corps, um, and all of those are basically like optimized to do what the owners want the company to do. Yeah, that's... Uh... Did you ever really consider getting other people on the cup table? Uh, at the hold co level, not really. Um, I don't think it's right for me. Like I, at some point, I need to, I need to be my own own thing. Um, you know, and I think I like having partners. I don't, you know, I don't love as much having investors. It's not as much fun as you know being in control. So, uh, it's a reasonable idea. I could probably go do it, but it just doesn't seem like fun. Does getting investors on at the holding company levels is, is similar to what it would be at a subsidiary level? Like, how 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 does the exit plan work? Uh well, in that case, like the way you exit or monetize assets in a holding company, or you either sell the subsidiaries by themselves, or you sell the whole holding company, or some combination thereof. So, there are holding companies, for example, that have investors at the holding company level. And then subsidiaries will have other investors in those subsidiaries. And so like you could imagine the holding company, let's say the founder owns 50% of that. And then the holding company owns 50% of a subsidiary that other investors own that extra 50%. And all of those are totally possible. They really just are done depending upon what the scenario is, um, you know, for the individual business. And, um, and for subsidiaries, you as a holding company, do you make, take your exits as in the form of secondaries? Uh, you can definitely do that uh, if you bring on investors. That's an option. Um, you can do that, you know, by selling all or part of the business. So I don't I, I do not do that. I've only ever sold one company and we sold the whole, the whole thing. So in the future, that may change. So people have money. I'll, I'll, I'll sell you everything for the right price. <laughs> yeah, that's an, in, that's incredible. I think you just go to the last part. You have a lot of co- holding companies under your belt. How do you manage them? That's terrible. Like, 
Yeah. Well, I think it does tie back to this idea that I think CEO is a full-time job and board member is a part-time job. So if one way to think about it is I have like 12 part-time jobs um, <laughs> plus making, you know, Twitter content. Um, so that's how to do it. Um, you know, ultimately my approach to my weeks is to, uh, to spread out and divide into four buckets, how I spend my time and then I schedule it and try to stay into a routine around those things. And, uh, and I stay busy. There's always seems to be work to do. Um, but I'm never in a place where I'm like, you know, consistently like super stressed or over the top worried, um, about stuff. So, um, yeah, that's the approach, you know, board, board membering and owning things turns out doesn't take as much time as being the CEO. That's, uh, yeah. How do you manage your time? That's something I'm curious yeah, I'm very calendar driven. I'm like a small child or a baby. You know how babies, infants like to have routine. Like I love to have routine. The uh, The idea that I do is I bucket my time into four buckets. So bucket number one is company supervision. So I spend my time like one-on-ones with CEOs, board meetings, all that kind of stuff. Bucket number two is like special projects. So that's another quarter of my time. So that's things like we're starting a new company, a company is struggling and we need to go fix it. Um, you know, we're trying to hire a new CEO, all that kind of stuff is bucket number two. Bucket number three is learning time. So I spend a lot of time reading, writing, and creating content to try to make myself smarter. Um, and a lot of that ties into the work I do in the first half as well. And then the last bucket, which is really new is I just try to not schedule anything for days and just think more deeply about the challenges that I have and, um, create that headspace to go do fewer decisions, but better. And uh, I have a day and a half each week just totally blocked off without, you know, any meetings or any interruptions. That's such a good point. And I think we'll take a hard stop there. I'll just ask the last question. Um, what advice would you like to give to all the young builders and founders out there? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's hopefully come across as a theme through everything I've said. Like, I think there's a real danger in doing things because you feel like other people, you know, want you to or the world wants you to or it's the right thing for you to do. And I think a reality is the way to live life is to pursue the life you want to live and worry very little about what other people think about it. And uh, I think if you do that, like you're you're guaranteed to live a happy life. Like it's hard not to. Yeah, I think it's a relative term. Some people, you are happy because you are you run a holding company. Someone else is happy because it's something else. Yeah. I think terrible. This is being terrible. I think I learned a lot from this one. That was fun for me. That's it from my side. Anything you'd like to say? Right on. Well, yeah, if uh, any of the listeners are interested in following along in my journey, you can go to my website, girdly.com. There's links to my Twitter, um, newsletter, all that kind of stuff. Um, want to help as many people as possible. So help me help you by going there if people are up for it. Yeah, that would be incredible. Thank you. All right, man. Appreciate you.